do NGOs behave badly because of their moral goodness? This podcast episode is about the problem when NGOs feel that they are on a moral high ground. Can NGOs do unethical things because they are considered morally good? Do they have and cherish a halo effect because they consider themselves morally superior? This is the argument of Isabel de Bruyne Cardoso, an experienced practitioner who in the past focused on child protection and safeguarding and who currently is a PhD student at Radboud Rotterdam University in the Netherlands. Isabel wants our sector to be alert to the following. If we think we are quote-unquote good, morally good, this can blind us to our own shadows. This is called the halo effect. The halo effect can also blind the public. They may be so convinced NGOs are morally good that they cannot see it when the sector or organizations or individuals within that engage in morally suspect or wrong behavior. Isabel tells us about the three moral risks that NGOs face. Moral self-justification of means towards an end, a sense of moral superiority, and moral naivete. All three can prompt NGOs to engage in unethical behavior or in the justification thereof. In short, you're in for a thought-provoking but necessary conversation. Hello, and welcome to NGO Soul and Strategy, the podcast for NGO leaders and managers who look change right in the eye. My name is Tosca Bruno van Vijwijken, and I'm the founder and principal consultant at Five Oaks Consulting. I have over three decades of experience helping leaders in civil society manage change, invest in cutting-edge leadership development, lead organizational culture change, and strengthen effectiveness. I'm also a thought leader on these issues, including as co-author of the book Between Power and Irrelevance, The Future of Transnational NGOs, which is read by civil society leaders across the globe. If you are such a leader and want to look change right in the eye, this podcast is for you. Hello, everybody. This is Tosca at NGO Soul and Strategy. I am truly looking forward to this interview. Let me ask you, do you think that NGOs behave badly sometimes because of their moral goodness? To what extent is it problematic if NGO workers or leaders or managers feel that they are on a moral high ground, that they are morally superior in some ways? Can NGOs do unethical things because they are considered morally good? Sounds kind of uh, like an oxymoron, right? Or something that is a bit of a contradiction. These are questions that have been on my mind for a while. And frankly, they bother me from time to time. And similar thoughts are also part of the argument of Isabel de Bruyne Cardoso, our practitioner, consultant, and PhD student 
at the Erasmus University in Rotterdam in the Netherlands, my home country. So I could not wait to have this interview. So here we go, Isabel, welcome. Thank you so much, Tosca. It's a pleasure to be here and discussing this very exciting topic with you. It is an exciting uh, topic and, and a complex one. So let me first introduce you, Isabel, to our audience. Isabel de Bruyne Cardoso is an international safeguarding and child protection consultant with about, is it 17 years, I calculated, Isabel, of experience with clients such as the World Bank, the Dutch Foundation, Porticus, UNICEF, Catholic Relief Services, and many others on And she consults with those client organizations on safeguarding in general and child safeguarding and child protection, amongst others. She's also a PhD candidate researching unethical behavior of NGOs at the Rotterdam School of Management at Erasmus University in Rotterdam, the Netherlands, as I said before. So, Isabel, tell us a little bit first about your practitioner career in brief and the focus um, that you um, had before that practitioner work, before you started your PhD research on what we are going to discuss, the halo effect, as you call it, and how that may, may relate to unethical behavior. Okay. Well, thank you again, uh, Tosca, for this opportunity to, to be on the podcast with you. Um, I've always had a tendency to work with organizations that have a mission to the social good or call that the public good. Um, and as you've mentioned in the introduction, I've worked with civil society organizations, different UN bodies, um, uh, academia, as well as some government governments. Um, and the primary way of working with them has been on a consultancy basis to identify some of the the problems or the challenges um, to doing good or that allow the social good to, to, uh, to persist. Mm. So a lot of research and assessments to try and understand uh, problems as well as providing solutions between quotes to addressing those problems or to mitigating those, those problems. Mm. Um, and it is at that point in my career when I was working specifically on safeguarding and helping uh, different types of organizations philanthropic foundations, civil society organizations, faith-based groups, how can they do better internally, operationally, uh, to ensure that any harm in their programming is, is minimized? Okay, let me just ask you for a moment, because there are probably very few of our listeners who do not know what safeguarding means, but it just occurred to me as you were speaking, we have a global audience there might be people who are not yet tapped into that discourse, if you will. Can you give us just for um, a general definition of what we mean by safeguarding? So some countries have legal definitions of safeguarding, but I think generally speaking, safeguarding is an organization's responsibility to minimize any harm that their organization does. So being very aware of the operations, uh, for example, recruitment procedures, being aware of the programs and what effect they have on the work that they do. I think before the Me Too movement, um, we saw a tendency for NGOs, maybe the UN as well, to develop programs uh, for beneficiaries. I think after the Me Too movement, and we've seen that also spill over into the aid sector, the mm -hmm. aid to movement, 
there's been increasing awareness that organizations can also contribute to harming beneficiaries. So this safeguarding is really taking an introspection mm. within the organization to see, okay, where are our risks to doing harm? And let's try and mitigate these risks. Got it. Got it. Yeah. And this podcast episode is not going to um, um, primarily focus on safeguarding, but I do want to ask you a couple of questions before we go to the the bigger topic, which is your um, research on the quote unquote halo effect uh, and uh, in NGOs and unethical behavior more, more broadly. So um, talk to us a little bit about, what that means, the halo effect, because not everybody knows that term necessarily. The original or the purest form of the halo effect uh, comes from the psychology literature. um, And that's very very much based on one's first impression. So, So the initial research was about if you see a beautiful person, for example, then there can be a tendency to judge that person as successful, smart, rich, even though you might have no idea whether that person is indeed successful, smart, or rich. Um, There's also been research, for example, children that are less good looking, uh, there might be a tendency to blame them more for certain behaviors than good looking children. So it's very much about this first impression and um, that how that first impression then can then cloud your overall judgments of the thing being judged. Um, It's also been used at the organizational level. Um, So a halo can be bestowed onto businesses with a corporate social responsibility uh, program, Mm -hmm. um, whereby the business would be considered to be good because they are doing something back. Um, We see that also, for example, in, in the car industry, the automobile industry with these flagship cars. And if you have like a nice fancy car on the outside, there can be a tendency for people to think, well, all the other cars on the inside of the showroom must be as nice. Ah. So I've applied this now to NGOs. Um, In my research, I'm trying to make a case that NGOs can be considered as good organizations. We also in, in, in our in our field, right, Tosca, we see that NGOs can sometimes be uh, labeled as a do-gooder. Yes, and uh, we'll talk about that more in a moment. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe um, oh sorry, go ahead. Okay, I'll 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 uh, I'll I wanted to just before we leave the field of safeguarding, because you have such a, a rich background in that. Um Let me ask you, much has been discussed and written, especially in the last five years or so, about and also much has been done uh, in NGOs in terms of policies and uh, regulations, processes, um, protocols, as you mentioned in before we started the recording, about safeguarding, particularly in the last five years or so because of uh, the fact that some um, instances of sexual abuse of either uh, women or uh, children um, or other impacted people um, came out into the media and really erupted in in a big way. What got you personally, Isabel, uh, to work on safeguarding policies in the first place? Uh, To be honest, I I was asked um, by a philanthropic foundation um, who at that point in their stage 
were recognizing that this could happen amongst their partner organizations. Right. Um, and that organization also realized that if they ask partners to have a safeguarding infrastructure in place, that they should also do something themselves. Right. Uh, because why have an expectation for others if you don't uphold that same expectation yourself? Um, so I, I started to work uh, with different type of organizations, those that have direct contact with um, children, women, vulnerable groups, and those that uh, do not have direct contact, but that who fund organizations that do, to kind of hold up a mirror and, uh, and through self-reflection uh, exercises to identify where can potential risks happen. Mm. Um, and once we know where those risks happen, then to come up with strategies to mitigate these risks. As we know, there is no one-size-fits-all safeguarding policy because the risks in one organization to safeguarding might just not be there in another type of organization. So it's not just context dependent, but it's also very much as to the type of work that the organization does. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Um, so before we go um, to the more generalized instances of, of unethical behavior uh, and instances of such in NGOs and what might be at the source of that, Still sticking to safeguarding for a moment. Um, and I know it's a big field by now. So I'm just asking you, could you pull out a few kind of main lessons you learned as a consultant and practitioner um, about what you consider as good safeguarding practices? Sure. And like you said, I'll, I'll reflect on some of my own um, practitioner experiences. Mm -hmm. um, to be honest, I have not found much in the academic literature at all on, on what works or what does not work in safeguarding. So that's a bit of an evidence gap. Mm. Um, but from the practitioner experience, I think there has been a tendency to increasingly discuss safeguarding and at various levels, uh, board level, executive level, um, at the volunteer level. And I think with this element of, you know, between quotes, discussability, there is also more clarity as to what safeguarding can look like for each organization. As what we were talking about before, safeguarding um, looks differently according to what type of work the organization does and the context it works for. Of The general premise is the same, to, to do no harm. But with discussions, there's also clarity as to exactly what safeguarding values mean. So to name a very simple example, um, respect. We both have a general understanding of what respect is. Mm. But maybe if we discuss this in more detail, we find that there is a nuance. So and also behaviorally, maybe, you know, it's easy to think we agree on what respect means. But really, what does it mean behaviorally? Is that an, is that an example of what you just said? Absolutely. Like with one of the organizations that I've been working with on identifying their safeguarding values, that respect actually came up. And when we had deeper conversation, it actually was in reference to diversity, equity and, and inclusion. Okay. And then thinking through, OK, what does that look like in practice? What structures do we need to put in place? Um, how do we behave to uphold this? So it's very much like you're saying, like once we have clarity on these values, then it also becomes 
arguably easier to practice those values when there's a common understanding um, of it. Um, I think also there is an increasing, not very quickly, but still an increasing tendency to be more transparent about um, safeguarding violations. Maybe this is more subsectorial based. So you find maybe like-minded organizations coming together and discussing when things go wrong, but at least it's happening. It's an acknowledgement that, okay, it didn't go right this time. Let's, let's figure out why it did not go right. Can I learn from you to see what you are doing to see if it's applicable to my work? So there is somewhat more transparency. Um, and, and also some, you know, also more of a tendency to enforce uh, safeguarding rules. Okay. Um, yeah. We know that a policy is just a piece of paper if it's not enforced. Um, so taking incidents seriously. Right, um, right. Um, let me ask you one more follow-up question. So, so you've told us just that there is definitely in relative terms, a ramping up of, of, of you, you know, involvement, engagement, more discussion, more, um, as we said before, policies, practices, protocols, et cetera, put in place, more transparency, more attempt to try to bring it down to the behavioral level, what this all means. Do you nonetheless see some blind spots in general, particularly in NGOs when it comes to um, um, safeguarding? And as a consultant, and and to the extent that you have been exposed to how leaders, whether executive or board leaders or advisory board leaders, um, have, have you seen blind spots or mindsets that are less than helpful that um, you could mention? I think the, the blind spots might be there in relation to incidents and and who is implicated in the incidents um in the sense of if uh, a well-respected uh or senior person within the organization is implicated mm-hmm. there might and and this is particularly true if the person or the departments investigating the incidents is not independent mm there might then be a tendency to not consider that incident as serious Mm. as if it were against someone who does not have that, if you will, halo. Maybe that that senior person, you know, has done great work in terms of fundraising, delivering certain outcomes, um, has been part of the organization for years. You know, he or she is not senior for nothing. Yeah. Yet there is incidents brought against them. The speed with which the incident is investigated might not be as quick as if it were with with another um, type of person. Interesting. So yes. there and other blind spots might also be blind spot. I think is a very strong word in the sense, but the element of role modeling. Okay. Um, even though when we're talking about safeguarding, it should be an organization-wide responsibility, we know that individuals are what make up the organization. So at the end of the day, if we say organization responsibility, we mean everyone, but then yeah. if it's everyone, it can quickly turn to no one. Yeah. So who, who, are, who are those role models? And they should be 
leaders um but which leaders is are, is it and 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 the board and executive um so I, I, yeah role modeling i think the elements of of who is really taking the reins could it's, be considered um yeah. it's not always that clear or is kept a little fuzzy so maybe blind spot you're saying is too strong a word but it's it's a uh, uh, let me. How about if we called it a recurring weakness that you see? Um, is that more? How would you call it? it well, something that's not happening uh, regularly yet. Okay. Um, and then I suppose it begs a question: what what is role modeling? Um, but role modeling could look like discussing safeguarding issues and not necessarily at the incidence level mm. um, but discussing uh gray areas or mm. um or even if it is at the incident level trying to understand okay how did this happen what is your opinion um how, how, what do you think should be done to ensure this does not happen again Got it. so yeah. normalizing the conversation could be an example of role modeling um and at that moment, it, it might be one person, you know, maybe a, a focal point who takes that upon his or her responsibility, mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily equally shared, uh, I see, um, yes. in certain organizations. Yeah. Got it. Interesting, interesting. I feel like uh, I could talk to you a lot longer uh, just on, on safeguarding, but we may do that in a in a separate conversation in the future. Let's turn to your research um, for your PhD. Uh, and so you just uh, brought out uh, an article, or it's in, in pre-production uh, publication stage, as academics call that. And to be uh, you know on the record, you did that together with fellow authors, Lucas Mais and Mule Kaptein. I hope I pronounce his uh, first name right. Um, tell us a little bit more about the halo effect and how it how the assumption or appearance and this is my very simplistic um um attempt at summarizing your uh top level um uh argument how that might actually um drive NGOs to um potentially engage in more unethical behavior. Tell us a little bit about the key arguments in the article that you're just coming out now. Well, the main arguments is that we see in in research that unethical behavior has been explained in spite of NGOs being considered good organizations. So they've been explained with very general organizational characteristics. It's because of leadership or it's because of the size of the organization or because it's of the age of the organization. So these are not necessarily specific to NGOs. They can be applied to business, to governments and so forth. Um, So they don't necessarily look at what is inherent to to NGOs. So I look at, we look at the, the characteristics that all NGOs would have by nature of them being an NGO. And we we look at or we trace these back and show that because of these inherent characteristics, we can consider NGOs to be good organizations. And, you know, based on our, our conversation a few moments ago, that if we have a good at first impression, there can then be a tendency for a halo effect. So our claim is that if we can consider NGOs to be good organizations because of the inherent characteristics, there can be a tendency 
for a halo effect. And we define the NGO halo effect as the uh, glorification of the NGO, mm-hmm. whereby it leaves itself to be better than it is. And we specifically highlight three elements that the mission can be considered to be better than it is, that the NGO believes to know better in terms of what a good mission is. Mm. So, so for example, just to use a very polarized example in the United States of pro-life and pro-choice, mm-hmm. both would believe that they know better than the other what a good mission is. Mm-hmm. We know that NGOs have the autonomy or the freedom to make their own mission. So they both think, okay, we know what a good mission is for the public good. Mm -hmm. And the third element is that uh, the people who work or volunteer at NGOs can also be considered to be better than they are because there is a tendency for some element of sacrifice. People willingly give money, for example, as an individual donor, people willingly uh, make less of a salary compared to maybe peers in the business. Mm-hmm. People might go to uh, conflicts, areas, non-family duty stations, so sacrifice their, their social life. So there can be a tendency to think, well, these people are, are amazing for sacrificing a part of themselves for the public good. Yeah, And we take these three elements and show how they then can lead to unethical behavior. So before we go there, I just wanted you to please um, unpack the first, your first argument. You said the mission is better than it is. I didn't, I have read your article, but I want to make sure I understand it well. And also that our audience understands that well, but tell us more about that argument. So one of the characteristics of NGOs is uh, what they refer to as a non-distribution constraint, which means that uh, the primary motivation of NGOs is not to generate profits. That's not to say that NGOs cannot generate profit. They certainly can, but then they have to reinvest it back into their organization. So they can't pocket the profits. They can't give it to their stakeholders. So this is basically what distinguishes them from businesses. Got it. So one scholar asked, if not for profit, then what? So the primary motivation in this sense then becomes the mission. Mm. And it's not just any mission. Um, It's a mission to the public good or social good, what what you would like to call it. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that characteristic can then lead to the consideration, well, if you are doing a mission to the public good, you must have a good mission. Mm. And if we then apply that halo lens, Mm. right, so that glorification that's what can mean like the mission is considered to be better than it actually is. So there could be a tendency in this sense to prioritize achieving the mission because it's considered to be so important Mm -hmm. over how the mission is achieved. So it can lead to an ends justifies the means mentality. Yeah. Yeah. Which is one of the ways that unethical behavior can be explained by NGOs. I yeah, reclaim. that's right. That's right. Yes, I, I now recall how you unpacked that in, in the article. And it it's, makes a lot of sense to me. So um, let me, one second. I need to pick up my pen. So um, how, well, no, let me rephrase it. To what extent is the halo effect, as you just defined and, and, and explained it, related, you think, to the much discussed and much 
um, critiqued kind of white savior complex and the white gaze on development. Do you see those as potentially linked uh, or, or not? So that the paper to which you're referring now, that's that's a theoretical paper. Mm-hmm. Um, in the sense it's based on, on the literature, and the literature has not made that link. Um, the interviews that I have been doing, uh, I've done about 15 interviews to see if you know the halo effect does exist in real life and it can be you and if it can be used to explain unethical behavior. That element has also not explicitly come up. Okay. Um, at least it has not been labeled as such. What has come up, however, are indeed uh, international NGOs based in the global north, um, having the tendency to design programs that don't involve the uh, participation of of beneficiaries. Right. Right. So it's very much... uh, we are here to help you and we know what is best for you yeah. mentality. Right. That is, then that is what it has I was not been wondering. Been- That's yeah. what I was wondering, Isabel. And it was purely a thought experiment as I was thinking about your research and thinking about what questions to ask you. I thought, well, I could imagine that one could argue at least, I'm not saying that that is any way academically proven, but one could argue that there could be conceptually linkages between the halo effect and and the the white savior complex and a white gaze on development. So it was purely exploratory that I asked you that question. Is there anything else that comes to mind on yet, or or um, shall I uh, pivot to a to a slightly different question? I mean, the discussion is very real. It's very ongoing. The colonization of aid, the localization agenda, and it's, it's very much on the forefront of uh, the NGO and I think philanthropy yeah. sector as well. Yeah. Uh, the role of equitable participation. Um, so, um, maybe yes, it's, a, it's a fertile, a fertile thoughts for the future. I don't know, but I. Uh, as I said, I just thought I would ask you in an exploratory sense. So let me um, move on. So how can we as a sector, as individuals and as organizations, so those three levels, if you will, how can we best compensate for or solve for this halo effect? Um, yeah, what, what comes to your mind so far in your research and in your practice? I think being aware of the halo um, and and recognizing when you know that consideration of good, which we argue is inherent, can flip to that tendency of a halo, and also being cognizant of when of 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 the enablers that can allow the halo to grow, mm. uh, with the argument that the stronger the halo, the more likely the tendency for unethical behavior. Um, so I think it comes down to being aware, like, do I have a halo as an, as an um, organization? Um, and, and how do I know that? So part, part of my research will also be to look at developing a tool or survey, if you will, um, a self-assessment form, uh, mm-hmm. I suppose would be a better word, for organizations, NGOs, and specifically to gauge 
whether there's a halo and and, and the degree of their ha- a halo. Mm. So in short, to answer your your, your question, how can we um, address this is being cognizant of the red flags. And I believe this could be another tool or mechanism to identify a red flag for when behavior can uh, go wrong. Yeah, so it's it's. It, I was thinking also about awareness, both institutional, individual, and sector level awareness, and uh, probably also frank discussion about it, so that we can call each other on on it, right? Especially as as within our organizations or as a, as a sector. And one of the things, just parenthetically, that I am sometimes tussling with in my own mind is to what extent gives this sense of moral goodness at least and and perhaps even superiority and i'll come back to that in a moment to what extent that gives us a sense of identity and ego and i mean ego now in the value neutral way that is actually somewhat problematic or that um can have problematic implications i don't know if that uh, brings up any thoughts in in your mind or whether that's something that is just in my mind in some strange way. No, I think the element of, of identity relates back to moral identity uh, as well, because yeah. NGOs, because of their mission to the public good, that is their, their identity, which arguably is a moral one because it is not in their own interest. Or theoretically speaking, I know that there can be a big debate as to whether NGOs are also self-interested to survive. Sure, a very that, big debate, and yeah. yes, sure, that uh, is is real. Um, but um, on on paper, uh, if if an NGO is is born with the purpose of providing the moral, sorry, the the public good, it can be considered a moral identity. So when we're talking about uh, NGOs and moral identity, then it it can um, raise questions as to if not for the NGOs, then what moral identity? Um, yes. And um, yes. Or yeah. if I am not an NGO uh, worker, what is my uh, moral identity? If not, you know, the same question that you asked before. Uh, yes. Interesting. Well, I, see, I, I, go ahead. That, that people who work or volunteer with, with NGOs often don't consider it to be a job. It's not a nine to five. It's not something that you just switch off. It's, in the research, also people have called it a life calling. It's 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 my own personal mission. I have been put here to exactly. Um, so so absolutely, and that's also um, what drives uh, the NGO sector. For people for altruistic reasons or other, do find um, a, a space, and that is then considered to be okay. This must be a good person. Do we then have to vet, uh, generally speaking, this person with rigid recruitment procedures or, for example, safeguarding policies? If they're yeah. so good, yeah. then we expect them to behave well as well. And we know that that's not necessarily the case. Exactly. Um, exactly. And that's something that I think I I could talk with you for a long time, which we won't because um, I, I have to uh, soon make sure that we don't run out of time. So let me be provocative in one more question and then ask you to tell us a little bit more about yourself where people can find more, uh, find out more about you. So 
Personally, I could imagine that there could be other implications of having uh, a sense of moral superiority, such as a lesser felt need to, to measure because this mindset, and you said it in so many words, Isabel, if my intentions or our intentions are good, then we are doing good, which is, of course is not a valid premise to it. But I think it's one that is in our collective mindset uh, subconsciously quite a bit in our sector. Um, another negative implication could be looking down on others who you as an NGO worker consider to be less moral including sometimes other NGOs, um, a difficulty in influencing unlike-minded actors, politicians, senior civil servants, um, multinational corporates, etc. So any thoughts on how there could be other negative implications of this sense of moral superiority and moral good that come to your mind? I'm, I'm just curious. I think at a sectoral level, the implication of there being a moral superiority is that there won't, that NGOs don't feel the need to be monitored uh, or held accountable. Yeah. So who, who's the ombudsman? Who, who is there to provide checks and balances? Because the inclination might be to think, well, we already know what is great, the best. We don't need anybody else um, yeah. telling us what to do. And the danger is that once, I shouldn't say the danger, but um, the implication is when others do say, listen, this is not going well, there to be a tendency for polarization. Who are you to tell me that I am doing wrong? Um, so that, that can lead to polarization. That can also lead to maybe more moral superiority, can also lead to more competition between NGOs. We know that at the end of the day, money is fundamental to the operations of, of NGOs. Yes. Um, we see that a little bit in, uh, in, in context where there's an overheated NGO market that NGOs, in order to get money, tend to inflate their, their, their grandeur, tend to yes. inflate their fabulousness. Um, for the sake of getting easier or quicker money. Yeah. So that tendency for moral superiority can increase, but also in crises. So Ebola, COVID, um, Afghanistan, for example. Um, you know, my mission is absolutely vital to this scenario. So, you know, my mission all of a sudden becomes prioritized. Um, this is not necessarily moral superiority, but the justification. So... Yes maybe inadvertently or also inadvertently um, unethical means might be put in place to ensure that, you know, men and women are on the ground. Yes. Maybe recruitment procedures are a little less stringent because yes. you want people on the ground. Yes. Um, the safeguarding trainings going back might not happen because time is money and you're diverting the attention away from, from the mission. Yeah. Um, it's very complex stuff, um, but uh, I could talk with you for hours about uh, about just unpacking these last couple of questions, but we regretfully don't have that, that time. So let me ask you, Isabel, lastly, if people want to know more and learn more about your fascinating research, but also about your practice your, uh, as a consultant, where should they go? Okay, thank you, Tosca. Um, they can find me on LinkedIn. 
under my name, Isabel uh, de Bruyne Cardozo. It's the same name for ResearchGate, where um, that preprint pre uh, or pre-publication to which you're referring is there. And I will continue to upload um, the research there. And I also have Twitter, which is uh, at de Bruyne underscore Isabel. Okay, and we will put all of this uh, these resources in the show notes, so you can find them there, including the the article that was the uh, the main focus of this uh, this interview. Well, thank you, Isabel, very much for all your insights. It's been really fascinating, and I hope you and I can can talk more as your uh, research and your practice uh, um, evolves. And uh, dear listeners, if you found this podcast stimulating then be sure to check out other episodes at fiveoaksconsulting.org. That is five as in the number five, oaks as in the plural of oaktrees.org. You can also find a number of these podcast episodes on my new YouTube channel. Subscribe and you will always be the first to be in the know. And finally, we're offering also as a team uh, a new online course on virtual team leadership. So while working in a virtual or hybrid team has clear advantages, and while a number of your general team leadership skills do apply to these virtual or hybrid team settings, you also need to use certain uh, approaches that are distinct from those used in co-located teams. So if you want to know more how you can future-proof your skill set in a way that also makes you stand out from the crowd, then check out Five oaks, again, as in the number five, oaks as in the plural of oak trees, dot teachable.com. And you will find more there about this upcoming uh, course cohort in February um, and, and March of 2022. And your team will thank you. This is Tosca, and I look forward to spending time with you on NGO, Soul, and Strategy next time. Thanks for listening to my podcast. If you valued the content, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify so that other leaders of social change organizations can find it too. And if you want to learn more, have a look at my website, fiveoaksconsulting.org, where you will find blog posts, recordings of interviews with me, as well as information about my co-authored book, Between Power and Irrelevance the future of transnational NGOs. If you sign up for my email list, you will receive a free sneak peek at the book. Or feel free to email me at tosca at fiveoaksconsulting.org or contact me through my website. And follow me on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Till we talk again at NGO Soul and Strategy the podcast for NGO leaders and managers who look change right in the eye.